98.5 FM and WMNF.org. You're listening to the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. This is WMNF Tampa. Today, we're going to speak with the author of a new book about the economic benefits from working to slow down climate change by shifting toward renewable energy and energy efficiency. And you can participate in this show by emailing us at tj at wmnf.org. You can also text us at 813-433-0885. If you do text, please sign your name. Later on in the show, we're going to take some calls from listeners. The book that we're going to talk about today is called Nomics: Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. And it's by Bob Keith, who is executive director of E2, Environmental Entrepreneurs. It's a group of business owners, investors, and professionals who advance policies that are good for the environment and good for the economy. I want to welcome you back to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Bob. Oh, Sean, it's great to be with you again. Thank you so much. Well, before we talk about the economics, which is what a lot of your book is about, let's start with just what we know about climate change. For example, I'm reading here from the Associated Press, in Washington State and Oregon, temperatures are forecast to top 100 degrees Fahrenheit in some places this week, as climate change fuels longer hot spells in a region where such events were historically uncommon. Heat waves aren't the only problem that climate change is bringing to us. What, what can you tell us about what we know about the effects of climate change? Well, that's a good point about Oregon. I, it just so happens I have a daughter that goes to college in Oregon, and they have a 100-degree uh, heat up there, which that region was not built for 100-degree heat, let me tell you that. And, and I know that because we also, at E2, we have a great member, uh, a business owner up there who runs a big food company. Uh, and a year ago, uh, you may remember, Sean, the temperatures up in Oregon reached 115 degrees in some parts. He couldn't bring his workers into the, the uh, processing plant to go to work uh, because they simply didn't like a place like Florida. They don't have the air conditioning that, they, that, that you all have in Florida and so forth. So they couldn't even get to work. When they finally did, they got their trucks on the road, but those trucks had to be diverted because of wildfires. Uh, so that's what the cost of climate change looks like, by the way. That's what it means to businesses. And it's happening in Oregon, but it's happening all across the country. Look at the uh, record temperatures that we're now seeing in the Midwest. Look at what we're seeing on the East Coast. Um, the thing about climate change is, yes, heat happens. Heat has happened for a long time. We all know that. Anybody who spent time in Florida knows that. But these extreme heat events are becoming more common. These hurricanes are becoming more common. They're becoming more powerful. These droughts are becoming more prolonged. That's what climate change looks like. Uh, and it's, by the way, it's costing every single one of us and hitting us in the pocketbook now. When it comes to the costs, well, I'm gonna talk about that for a second right now. The CEO of the National Resources Defense Council, Manish Bhapna, writes in the book's preface, the economic benefits of climate action are greater than ever while the economic costs of inaction are growing increasingly worse. So we'll, we'll have time this hour to talk about the benefits, but first, how expensive is doing nothing to stop climate change? Well, look, what Noah tells us is that last year alone, the United States had nearly $150 billion worth of damage from climate-related disasters, Sean. Uh, that was up nearly 50% from the year before. Uh, but it's also close to what we've been averaging on a five-year basis 
uh, in this country. In Florida alone, climate change is doing about $14 billion a year in damage on average. Uh, of course, that's mainly from hurricanes and tropical storms. Uh, and those numbers go way up from year to year. I mean, look at what happened in 2018, Sean, with Hurricane Michael in the Panhandle. More than $18 billion worth of damage to uh, that region, the Panhandle of Florida. Six, 60,000 homes damaged. They're still cleaning up at Tyndall Air Force Base where they had uh, just about every single building on that base was flooded and it uh, put the world's most expensive airplanes, the F-22 Raptor, Raptors, uh, right in the bullseye of one of the uh, most expensive hurricanes that we've we've had in this country. And the U.S. Office of Management and Budget says because of disaster relief, flooding, crop damage, health insurance, and wildfires, they expect that by the end of this century that it'll cost the U.S. $2 trillion every year if we do nothing to abate climate change. That's right. And look, that that's just the direct cost of climate change. That's what we see uh, on the television when the wildfires are happening in the West or flooding's happening in the Midwest, or of course, hurricanes are happening so many that we run out of names for them on the East Coast. Those are the direct cost of climate change. But you also have to look at the other costs that come with that. Uh, when fields get flooded, when cattle die, like several thousand just did in Kansas, they killed over dead from heat stroke a couple of, uh, a month or so ago. Uh, that causes the price of everything to go up. Um, that causes the price of everything from cornflakes to chicken to go up when we go out to uh, the, the grocery store. According to the UN, uh, globally, food prices are up something like 70% uh, over the past couple of years. Now, that's for a lot of reasons. One of those big reasons is because of climate change. Look at the other costs though, Sean. Look at the cost of homeowner's insurance, something that any Floridian can relate to. Over a decade's time, homeowner's insurance went up 40% across the country as those insurers continue to see mounting losses from wildfires, from hurricanes, from flooding. In the San Francisco Bay Area, the other Bay Area, just a couple of weeks ago, temperatures hit over 100 degrees, which is uh, almost unheard of in the, in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, the, the rails at, for the BART system, the rail system up there got up to 140 degrees, so hot that it derailed a train. Fortunately, nobody was injured. Uh, but that's going to cost taxpayers to clean up. Uh, and we're seeing this all over the country. Our guest is Bob Keith. He's, an he's the executive director of E2. His new book is called Nomics: Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. You begin the book, Bob, by looking at three things that happened on May 26th of last year's. Shareholders won climate victories with ExxonMobil and with Chevron. And the same day, a court in The Hague ruled that Royal Dutch Shell must reduce emissions to honor its promises to shareholders. You say not only was it a sign that shareholders were getting more power to force companies into climate action, but also that economics were at play, that climate change is an economic issue. Well, yeah, and I started the book in that way, Sean. Just for one thing, it was just a, 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 an amazingly dramatic day. Uh, and as I mentioned, a bad day to be in the oil business because the three of the biggest oil companies in the world uh, at, on the same day at almost the same time, by the way, uh, suddenly faced this shareholder uprising uh, 
Um, and shareholders were basically saying, we've had enough. You all have been putting your head in the proverbial sand for too long. Um, it's hurting our planet, yes, but it's also hurting our stock price. Uh, and if you all don't do more, oil companies, to seize on the opportunities that are uh, now clearly in front of us from transitioning to cleaner energy, and do something about the growing costs of uh, being tethered or shackled, if you will, to an industry that's helping kill our planet and kill our economy, we're going to do something about it. So at Exxon, they voted out three board members and replaced them. At Chevron, they forced them to adopt serious standards to reduce carbon emissions. And uh, Royal Dutch Shell, as you mentioned, in, in The Hague, uh, faced a lawsuit and the court basically ordered the, the oil company to reduce its emissions by 45% uh, because it said it was not just hurting shareholders, but it was hurting the entire economy of the Netherlands. So, um, you know, to me, it was a sign, a, a clear sign that, yes, the yes, the climate change is hurting our environment. It's an environmental issue. Yes, it's a social issue. Yes, it's a health issue, but it's also a pocketbook issue. It's also an economic issue. And frankly, when things start to hit people in the pocketbooks, they start to take action, whether it's shareholders at oil companies uh, or, or taxpayers in America, hopefully. And in the last year or so, these companies, Chevron, Shell, and Exxon have pledged to become zero emissions companies by, by 2050 or thereabouts. So I'd like you to tell us what that means for them to be zero emissions companies, but also the fact that Exxon's pledge does not include what, what are called scope three emissions from the burning of its products. So walk us through that if you don't mind. Well, there are several levels of, um, of emissions, if you will, and they sometimes they, they start with the easiest. Look, well, here's, what we, here's the energy we use. We're gonna shift that to 100% clean energy. Uh, but then you have to look at the energy that's used to produce your products. You have to look at the energy that you use to transport those products, those sorts of things. The scope three emissions are always the hardest for companies to get to, uh, but it's something that can make a huge difference and we need more companies moving in that direction. Um, now, these oil companies have basically said we're going to move toward a net zero carbon future. Um, the fact of the matter is they have to. Uh, they have to because courts in places like The Hague are doing the right thing and governments around the world are doing the right thing. We need to do more of that in this country uh, to to push the biggest polluters uh, in our economy to reduce those emissions because it's impacting every one of us. It's impacting us from a health perspective, but also, as we now know, from an economic perspective. Uh, so fortunately, they and just about every other Fortune 500 company is beginning to move in the right direction. We need to move it faster. Uh, and one of the ways to the best way to make it move faster is through policy. We need our lawmakers in Washington and in Tallahassee to do more to push these companies in the right direction. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. This is the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're speaking with Bob Keith, who is executive director of E2. His new book is called Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. And you're listening to WMNF Tampa. It's 10.18 in the morning. If you'd like to email us, it's dj 
at WMNF.org, or you can text 813-433-0885. Please sign your name if you do text. And uh, later on, I'll, if, if there's time, I will open up the phone lines as well. So uh, let me get back to asking Bob about solar and wind prices compared to these fossil fuels that we've been talking about. In 2019, the solar power and wind power became the chip cheapest source of energy across America. Prices dropped to about $40 per megawatt. How did it happen that solar and wind became the cheapest forms of energy? Well, for one, for, for starters, the fuel is free, <laughs> aka the sun and the wind. So uh, that's not the case when you have to dig up coal. It's not the case when you have to, uh, to, to, to drill for, for oil. So um, the other thing is, though, it, it, the reason that prices have gone down for solar and wind specifically is because we have invested in these technologies as a country in the past through the Department of Energy, uh, through previous administrations. Uh, we have refined this technology now, or business and industry has refined this technology now. So as you mentioned, it's the cheapest power there is. Um, wind is something, and this is according to Lazard, the, the big investment bank that tracks this kind of stuff. Uh, wind is starts at about 26 bucks per megawatt hour. Uh, this is uh, as of 2021. Uh, utility scale solar is about 28. By comparison, uh, existing gas is about $45 a megawatt. Coal is about 65. Nuclear is 130 plus. Uh, so the good news is that the cleanest energy is now the cheapest energy uh, at a utility scale level. Uh, and that's moving companies. And that's as part of the book as well, Sean, as you know, that, that's starting to move companies toward cleaner, uh, toward get, procuring cleaner energy all around the country. When you look at the big tech companies that use a ton of uh, electricity to run the data centers that let you and I talk over the internet uh, and exchange emails and get your airwaves out, uh, get your message out over the airwaves. Um, uh, almost every single major tech company now is shifting to 100% renewable energy. Why? Sure, it's the right thing to do, but the real reason is because it's the cheapest power they can get. Uh, and it's a business decision. And again, now that things are becoming a business decision, uh, that are becoming an economic decision, uh, we're starting to see uh, optimistic signs that we're moving in the right direction. But we need to do it quicker, and that's where policy comes in. So on that case where policy and the, the investments by government that you talked about that did bring down the price of solar and wind, in contrast to that, there were some Trump-era policies to disincentivize renewables. What happened during the 2017 through 2021 era? Well, we, we fell well, well, way behind, and we lost a lot of opportunities. Um, Yale and Columbia uh, have for years done an annual study on where countries are in a clean energy transition and where they are on climate action. And prior to the Trump administration, the United States was around 15 in the world. Not that great for the country that's supposed to lead the world. 15 isn't that great. Uh, after the Trump administration, we dropped to 101. Uh, uh, in world leadership. So we had a president that thought we could return to coal to power our economy. That obviously didn't happen. The good news is uh, a lot of the setbacks that we saw during that administration, uh, we're moving past them. Again, we're not moving fast enough. 
Uh, and every lawmaker should understand that the more we delay, the more it's impacting the pocketbooks of their constituents. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully we can move a little quicker. The Trump cabinet had ties to oil. The During the Trump administration, drilling and mining in national areas, public lands and waters really escalated. Um, right. Despite all that, investment in clean energy surged anyway. In 2020, it was up 28% to $55 billion. And that led to job creation because of the renewable energy tax credits. That's right. That's right. Well, if, look, if you, if you follow the money, if you smart, follow the smart money, uh, it, it's going into clean energy. Uh, it was and it continues to be. And, you know, I've got a, a, a friend, an E2 member who's a, a, an investor in Washington State. And he said that uh, what is most uh, makes him most optimistic is that a lot of the money has already gone into the old technologies and it's continuing to flow. And when he says old, he's talking about solar and wind uh, and to some extent electric vehicles. He's, he, what he's saying is that the the old money is going into those things now, which frees up venture capitalists and early stage investors to start bringing on technologies that we haven't even imagined yet. Uh, and starting to get some of these technologies off of the ground. And that's something that really makes me hopeful as well, Sean. You know, I spent 20 years as a journalist, including about a decade in, there in Tampa Bay for the paper formerly known as the St. Petersburg Times. And uh, after that, I covered technology in Austin, Texas, and then the West Coast, and then uh, ultimately ended up in Washington, D.C., covering the White House and Congress. But we we can't we shouldn't discount the the um, the opportunities that come with technology. I mean, look how fast electric vehicles have come on. Look how fast LED lighting has come on. Look how fast simple things like programmable thermostats uh, have become a part of our lives. Uh, those things are all doing. Uh, those things are all helping us save electricity, save energy, uh, and to have a cleaner environment. And they've happened pretty quickly. Our guest is Bob Keefe, executive director of E2, and his new book is called Climate Nomics. And it's interesting that you mentioned your your time here in the Tampa Bay area as a journalist, because one of your former colleagues is on the show next. So I'm going to plug that show right now. Next, uh, coming up at 11 o'clock is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. And their guest today is Betty Jean Jeremy of the Clio Institute. And they're going to talk about climate change, climate justice, and taking action. So I hope you stay tuned to WMNF Tampa to hear that show with Janet and Tom and their guests continuing our conversation today about climate change. So um, I'm going to turn now. I worked worked alongside Tom for a number of years. He's a great guy. He is. He's wonderful. that he's doing that. And uh, so uh, keeping in on the Florida issue right now. I'm going to talk about Florida Public, uh, sorry, Florida Power and Light and one of its subsidiaries that you write about in your book, Climate Nomics. Um, we're, we're going to get to FPL itself in just a second, but let's first talk about the subsidiary called Next Era. You write, outside Florida, Next Era is a leader in clean energy. The company began taking some of the vast amounts of money that it generated from dirty fuels in fast-growing Florida and investing it into clean wind and solar farms elsewhere 
So what else can you tell our listeners about Next Era? Well, look, Next Era and FPL hasn't been, frankly, the uh, exactly a leader in Florida when it comes to clean energy. I mean, the Sunshine State should be well ahead of where it is when it comes to generating electricity from the sun uh, and from the wind and from batteries or, or storage and batteries. And it ought to be well ahead when it comes to energy efficiency, given the amount of electricity that the state has to use to cool down every summer. Uh, and occasionally heat up in the winter. Uh, FPL uh, has not done a great job as a leader in that state, but outside the state bo uh, state's borders, Next Era is one of the biggest investors uh, in the country, if not the world, into uh, solar and to wind around around the nation, um, which is a good thing, and they should be applauded for that. But they need to do more in the state as well. Well, then let's turn now just specifically talking about Florida Power and Light, they're infamous for the troubled Turkey Point nuclear reactor in the Miami area. The company also supported a Florida bill that would have removed financial incentives for rooftop solar. Right. That, bill, that bill was passed this year by the Florida legislature before it was vetoed by Governor DeSantis. And a few years ago, FPL was behind a misleading ballot initiative about solar power. And there's even news, more news today about FPL and, and its uh, kind of shady dealings. The Miami Herald is reporting today that FPL secretly took over a Florida news website called The Capitalist and used it to bash its critics. Um, what else can you add about Florida Power and Light? Well, I don't know about that, that specific uh, incident, Sean. Thanks for bringing it up to me. What, what I do know is that if, these if a lot of these companies would spend more time actually investing in cleaner energy and actually investing in um, uh, bringing us products that we all want. If you look at poll after poll after poll, consumers say they want cleaner energy. They want more electric vehicles. They want their companies, uh, their utility providers and their governments to do more to bring it to them. If, if companies and governments would do that, we'd be in a lot better shape, uh, instead of spending their money and spending their time on disinformation campaigns. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. It's 10.29 in the morning. My name is Sean Canaan, and I'm the host of WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. Our guest this hour is Bob Keith, Executive Director of E2. His new book is Nomics: Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. Bob, you talked earlier about the rise of electric vehicles, and in the book you write about the rise of Tesla. Right now, people associate Tesla with billionaire Elon Musk, but his investment in the company, his initial investment at least, pales in comparison with a huge government loan that the company got that really kickstarted that that whole industry. That sparked the rise in, in electric vehicles. It, it, it really did. So uh, Tesla was one of the first companies to get a DOE loan guarantee uh, during the Obama administration in, uh, when we were recovering from the last big recession. Uh, and it's important to note that because a lot of people like to point out one the, the one or two failed investments by the Department of Energy uh, under its loan guarantee program. But you have to also look at companies like Tesla and that early stage investment, I think it was $35 billion uh, that went into Tesla, excuse me, $35 million that went into Tesla from the Department of Energy. Uh, look at what that's done. That has driven 
the innovation in the auto industry to, to where it is today, where we have every single automaker, not just in America, but in the world, shifting to electric vehicles. Why? Because the technology is caught up. Uh, and because they are cheaper to operate in the long run, because more Americans want them. I was I was looking at an F-150 Lightning truck. Sean, you know what the waiting list is for that right now? Three years. You have to wait three years to, to try to buy an electric truck right now. Um, that's demand. And think of the good we could do by replacing a bunch of F-150 trucks with electric F-150 trucks in this country. Uh, both from the both from an environmental standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint, we're creating thousands of jobs. Last year alone, uh, employment in building electric vehicles was up twenty five percent. And these are jobs that yes are going into Michigan and other parts of the Midwest, but they're also going into Texas. They're going into Kentucky. They're going into South Carolina. Decidedly red states, by the way, that sometimes are represented in Congress by people who think clean energy is is a sham and climate change is a hoax. But these jobs are coming to their backyards, uh, creating the products that we all want and that we all need. That We have a three-year waiting list for trucks, believe it or not. Our guest is Bob Keefe, Executive Director of E2. His new book is Climatenomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. And I have a couple of emails that came in from listeners I should read right now. Since we're talking about electric vehicles as one of the solutions um, to, to the climate problem, uh, this, this uh, emailer, Peter from Indian Shores, writes, you know, he's kind of skeptical about the whether vehicle emissions are contributing a lot, as much to climate change that it would make a big difference. He says that vehicles account for about 16.4% of U.S. greenhouse emissions he says, yes, we should go green from oil, from black, but not on the flip of a dime that Americans don't take change quickly. And before you can respond, Bob, let me just read this other email as well. Uh, Jeff writes, I've heard some people pose the question regarding solar and wind. What happens when it's not sunny or windy? And Jeff says, any thoughts on the alternatives of nuclear or hydrogen energy? So those are, those are two listeners that have emailed us questions. Any thoughts on those, Bob? Well, let's take the second question first, if, if we could, and then I'll try to remember the first question. Uh, but when it comes to solar and wind, absolutely, what happens when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow? Uh, that's a great question, and we need to continue working on that. But what we know now is that one of the fastest growing parts of clean energy is battery technology and battery storage. Right now, there's almost no major solar projects, no major wind projects that are being built without battery storage with it. So if you go out to a big solar farm right now, you're gonna see uh, big, uh, uh, what do you call them, storage containers that are filled with batteries that are storing up the energy during the day and discharging it at night. Uh, now I can tell you from personal experience what that looks like because I have a battery that's connected to my solar system on my house uh, and that's that that battery basically charges up during the day and it carries me till about 11 o'clock at night uh, and it powers my house at 11 o'clock at night. And that battery was relatively cheap, by the way, and I put it in five years ago and it's more than paid for itself uh, within a couple of years. But that that's part of the solution to that to that right there. 
And the first question. The first question was about electric vehicles. And what was the second part of that? Do you remember? Yeah, he, he was pointing out that they only account for about 16.4% right, 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 of greenhouse right. gas emissions. Uh, I don't know if that, that number is correct. I'm going to take the, the uh, listener at his word, but I do know that transportation is now the biggest source of carbon emissions uh, in our country. That used to be utilities. Fortunately, utilities have, have brought down that number some in part because of smart policies in the states and at the federal level. But transportation is now still the biggest source of uh, of greenhouse gas emissions and carbon emissions uh, that we have in America. And the good news is we now have the technology to do something about it. Uh, you know, the electric vehicles that we have today are not the electric vehicles that we had in the early 90s when GM was rolling out its EV1. Um, it's hard to talk to an electric vehicle owner who doesn't like that vehicle. And uh, we're only getting started. And GM has announced that we'll only sell That's EV right. and alternative fuel vehicles by 2035. And other companies are headed in the same direction. You mentioned the Ford F-150, which has that tremendously long uh, uh, waiting list. Right. Yeah, that's right. Best-selling vehicle in America, by the way. Our guest is Bob Keith, Executive Director of E2. His new book is Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. It's 1036 in the morning, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. And please sign your name if you do text or email us. Let's talk now about jobs and how the how the transition to a clean energy uh, sector can create jobs. From 2017 through 2019, clean energy jobs grew six percent. In your, I, I'm reading this from your book. Yeah. While coal jobs dropped seven percent. There are three million clean energy jobs in 2020 in the country, and the top three states: California, Texas, and Florida. Right. Well, I can give you a hot news update there, Sean, because next week my organization, E2, is releasing our annual Clean Jobs America report. Uh, and what we know now is that uh, as of the end of last year, there were about 3.2 million Americans that worked in clean energy uh, across the country, including about 170,000 in Florida. Uh, and that uh, across the country, Clean energy jobs have increased about 5% from the year before, um, which is uh, pretty significant. It's growing faster than a lot of other uh, parts of our economy. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the fastest growing jobs in America uh, among the top three are still in solar and wind. Um, and then in, in Florida, the, uh, the job increase has been about 6%. So these are jobs, of course, in solar and wind. They're what you would traditionally think of, but it's also, remember those electric vehicles that I talked about, uh, jobs in electric vehicles and in plug-in hybrids and things like that are up 25% uh, as Americans continue to be uh, sick and tired of paying four, five, six, seven dollars a gallon for gasoline and are shifting to EVs now that the technology has arrived. But it's also an energy efficiency. And in Florida and just about every other state, the biggest employ, employer in clean energy jobs is, is, is in energy efficiency, making our homes, our schools, our offices more, uh, 
more comfortable and also cheaper on our monthly power bill. And in Florida alone, there are about 110,000 people that work in energy efficiency. The NPR affiliate in Orlando reported today that Florida's number of solar jobs ranked second in the country behind right. California in a new report. Florida has 12,000 solar jobs compared with California's 76,000. And the Interstate Renewable Energy Council's Larry Sherwood produced the report. He says most jobs in Florida were in the utility scale installation, which requires less labor. Other states have much higher amounts of residential solar installations would see a much higher number of jobs. So I guess one takeaway from that is that if, if solar power were to ramp up in rooftop, residential solar power were to ramp up in Florida, that would create even more jobs in now what's the second leading job state for solar in the country. That's right. That's absolutely right. And it's, and it's yes, it's the installers. It's the people we think about, the construction workers that are putting the farms on the ground. But it's also the suppliers, Sean, and, and, and the companies that feed into the supply chain of that. I remember talking several years ago with a company in the panhandle of Florida that um, makes uh, fasteners for solar panels. So when you put them up on the roof, you got to have a fastener to, to hook them to the racks. Uh, and he made a simple uh, piece of metal that did that. Well, he was one of the biggest uh, solar fastener companies uh, in the country. But what he told me was that almost none of his business came from the state of Florida. Uh, those things were being shipped around the country now, now and around the world. So fortunately, Florida is starting to get with the program. Uh, if we had uh, bills like that net metering bill that you mentioned passed earlier, if we had better policies like uh, a renewable portfolio standard in Florida, which we do not have, uh, uh, you'd, you'd see a lot more growth in not just solar, but in the companies that uh, supply those uh, solar, solar installers. Our guest is Bob Keith, Executive Director of E2. His new book is called Climatenomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. So speaking of, I guess, Washington, speaking of the government's role here, a lot of times people think about climate issues as um, red versus blue. But your point, you, you're, you've pointed out before on WMNF and in this book that many clean energy jobs are in GOP congressional districts. Right. Well, as mentioned, you know, my organization, E2, has been tracking clean energy jobs around the country for about a decade now, Sean. And what we found is that there are now almost as many clean energy jobs in congressional districts that are held by Republicans as there are congressional districts held by Democrats. And if you look at just the, the top 10 states for clean energy employment, uh, yes, California liberal blue California is right at the top, but you also have in the top 10, Florida, of course, uh, Ohio, North Carolina, Virginia. Um, uh, uh, the, among the top 10 states for clean energy jobs, half of them are controlled by Republican governors uh, and half of them, are, about half are controlled by Democratic governors. So, you know, this is an industry that isn't bound by geography, by geology, uh, or and it shouldn't be bound by politics. There's also, uh, what can you tell our listeners about the connection between clean energy and national security? Well, it's huge. You know, as far back as 2014, um, then Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel 
classified climate change as a quote unquote threat multiplier. You know, when there's, when countries get disrupted because of things like drought or severe tropical storms, uh, our military quite often has to come up and get engaged and get involved in that. So we're sending troops into harm's way. Look at all of the, the Navy personnel and others that we have guarding the Straits of Hormuz right now every single day uh, just to make sure we can get oil in and out of the, the uh, Persian Gulf. Uh, so it's a huge burden uh, on our military to to keep the supplies of fossil fuels running to this country. But it's also climate change is becoming a huge cost for the military. Again, let's look at what happened in 2018 in Florida when Hurricane Michael hit the panhandle. It almost wiped out Tyndall Air Force Base. Uh, they're still rebuilding there. But Tyndall happened just a month, by the way, after Camp Lejeune in North Carolina got hit by Hurricane Florence. There we had uh, something like 60% of housing units, 6,000 housing units at Camp Lejeune were flooded and damaged. Almost every single non-military building was flooded and damaged, just like what happened at Tyndall. A few months after that, in the middle of the country at Offutt Air Force Base uh, was hit by uh, a flooding from the worst thunderstorm event we've ever had in this country, a derecho out there. Uh, Offutt is home, by the way, to the quote-unquote doomsday planes, the planes that are supposed to become the flying White House in case of nuclear war or other major catastrophes like that. Uh, the runways were so flooded that uh, it's doubtful those planes could have even gotten off of the ground if they needed to be. And when you added it all up at the end, Sean, there was more than $10 billion worth of damage to our military bases in that one year alone from storms and from flooding. And guess who pays for that? Me, you, every American taxpayer. And uh, McDill Air Force Base is on a low-lying peninsula right in the Absolutely. middle of Tampa Bay. Uh, any kind of um, high sea event, whether it's a hurricane or just um, the progression of, of global uh, warming, which causes sea level rise, is going to dramatically affect the operations at McDill Air Force Base. That's right. And if you talk to... Uh, Congresswoman Kathy Castor from there in Tampa, or if you talk to the personnel at McDill, uh, they'll tell you that that's a, that's a huge concern in the back of their minds. Our guest is Bob Keith, executive director of the E2. His new book is called Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org or text 813 0885. I'm Sean Canan, and you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. It's 1045 in the morning, and I remind you to stay tuned at 11 o'clock to hear Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger also talking about climate change. So please stay tuned for the great programming that we continue to bring, bring you here on WMNF. Let's talk about the diversity problem in clean energy. Um, you write that 20%, 26% of clean energy workers are women, only 7% are Asian, 18% Latino, 8% Black. And for many of those groups, the trend is downwards. How is there a way to change that trend? There is. It's called policy. Uh, and if you look at what the Biden administration wants to do with its Justice 40 initiative, for instance, uh, and with the investments that it wants to make into clean energy, 
um, uh, a, a significant portion of those investments would be into communities of color and to low and moderate income communities around the country. Uh, and why shouldn't they, by the way? Why shouldn't those investments go there? Look, the, the, the fact of the matter is clean energy has a diversity problem. Uh, these are products that have been so far um, uh, limited in some extent to the people that can afford them, whether it's Teslas and electric vehicles or solar panels on our houses. Uh, and as you mentioned, our research at E2 shows that the jobs that come into clean energy are overwhelmingly going to white men as well. Uh, you mentioned women, 26% of the clean energy workforce. Of course, nationally, it's closer to 50% uh, of the workforce. Blacks and African-Americans in clean energy, about 8%. Nationally, it's closer to 13% of our national workforce. So uh, we need to make sure as we continue to expand this clean energy economy, that it's uh, an economy that is beneficial to every American uh, whether they live in uh, rich areas on the coast or poor areas inland and elsewhere. About a month ago, we had an interview planned, but you had to cancel it the, uh, because of a conflict that came up. You had a meeting with the Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and others. What right. was that meeting about? What came out of that? So she was actually in Pittsburgh at the time to talk about clean energy jobs and also to visit uh, I believe it was a huge battery technology operation in the state of, or in the city of, of Pittsburgh. And it, you know, look, the, the Biden administration and, and Secretary Granholm has long been a leader in this space, but the Biden administration has clearly shown and uh, committed to moving us in the right direction. Uh, with a reduction, with a goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in this country by 50% plus by 2030, by moving to 100% clean energy by 2035, uh, by moving to 100% clean vehicles by 2050. Uh, lofty goals, perhaps, uh, but certainly obtainable. I mean, those years are, those are some years off. Uh, I always hearken back to some of the bigger things that we've done in this country. And of course, one of the biggest things we did was go to the moon. And um, some folks will remember that we went to the moon in, an, in, an, in eight years after President Kennedy said we were going to do it. Uh, eight years from now is 2030. Uh, you know, and when, when I think about the pace of technology, the technology is there now. Uh, we have the way to do this stuff, but we need policy at the federal level and at the state level to make solar and wind more available and more affordable to more Americans. We need policy to make those electric vehicles more available, more affordable to more Americans. And we need policy to make energy efficiency that can save us money with every power bill more available and more affordable to more Americans. Uh, the Biden administration is leading on this. Congress is kicking the can down the road and continues to. Uh, we need to, as um, as constituents, make sure that our lawmakers understand that this is an urgent issue. It's a costly issue. And I don't care if you like polar bears. I don't care if you believe in science. I don't care if you 
drive a pickup or a Prius, the fact of the matter is climate change is hitting us square in the pocketbook and we've got to do something about it. The good news is by doing something about it, as we've been talking about, we can create jobs, we can drive economic growth uh, and we can strengthen our economy. And you were mentioning the Biden administration's policies, but Congress not really following up. Biden's Build Back Better bill was killed by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, but Biden did manage to pass his Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was worth $1.2 trillion. And of that, about $100 billion came in clean energy spending. That's right. That's right. It's a great start. It's a great down payment, if you will. Uh, the infrastructure bill is going to get us a lot more electric vehicle charging stations out there, for instance. So up and down I-95 and I-75, we're going to see a lot more of those. Uh, and that is going to be a huge benefit to uh, expanding and cleaning up our transportation system. Um, but it's, it's, it's a start. Uh, we need to invest more into clean energy. We need to invest more uh, into manufacturing in this country um, so we can catch up with the rest of the world. Even though the Build Back Better didn't pass, American businesses are kind of, in a way, already implementing a sort of Build Back Better agenda, and that's based on the economics of clean energy. Right. Well, and, and again, Sean, as, as we mentioned earlier, the cheapest energy available right now is solar and wind. <laughs> Excuse me. Every transportation company is looking for a way to reduce its fuel costs. Uh, right now, you can fill up your car for something like 18 bucks, 20 bucks. Uh, if it's an electric vehicle, the same vehicle will cost you 80 bucks to fill it up with gas. Think about the implications if you're a, a, a company that is reliant on vehicles to get your products out there and get them, uh, get them to consumers. The upsides are huge. Our guest is Bob Keith, executive director of E2. His new book is called Climatenomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. It's 10.52 in the morning. You're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. So the, these businesses, they can invest in major changes, but you write that the ability of the federal government to send market signals to shape the economy and incentivize specific industries can influence that through research and development. Right. Look, I mean, businesses and, and investors can do a lot, but they can only do so much. Uh, I guess that businesses, investors back in the day could have uh, helped expand the railroads to the West. I guess back in the day, utilities and businesses could have brought electricity to all. Um, I guess private industry could have gone to the moon. Uh, but when it comes to huge issues like that that are impacting every American, for the better, by the way, we, we have to have leadership from government. That's the whole point of having a government is to uh, protect us and to move the country in the right direction in, in ways that are beneficial to all of us. So uh, we, we probably could not have relied just on businesses to expand the railroads without the Railroad Act. We couldn't have light for all without the Rural Electrification Act. We couldn't have highways all across the country uh, if not for President Eisenhower and his leadership on that. Uh, we need the same thing on clean energy right now. We need the same thing uh, 
on electric vehicles and on energy efficiency because it's the biggest problem that we face as a planet and as a country. We have a text message here from a listener named Beth who writes, considering the procurement of raw, material, raw materials for solar panels and batteries and the waste of uh, post-useful, so after their, their useful lives are up, of solar panels and batteries, are those factors accounted for when conducting sustainability assessments? Beth writes, goes on to write, what are the manufacturing to disposal environmental and economic costs and will the waste poison land and water? If, and she, so Beth wants to know if we know these questions. And you know, I, I think especially the idea of batteries and mining lithium and other rare minerals and then the disposal of, of those. Good questions, Beth. What, what can you say about that, Bob? Absolutely, great questions and certainly something we ought to be looking at. Uh, look, we, we have to figure out what to do with waste from energy, uh, any energy that we use, whether it's nuclear waste, which we still don't know what to do with, or the waste that comes uh, in the form of pollution when we burn fossil fuels. Uh, when it comes to batteries, I can um, think about a E2 member in Michigan who essentially takes uh, Nissan Leaf and other batteries from electric vehicles. And frankly, we don't know a lot of answers to this because these these uh, technologies haven't been along, been around long enough to, to need replacement in many cases yet. But what our member uh, uh, Ellington Ellis does in Michigan is takes batteries from old vehicles uh, that can't go 50 miles now, they can't go 100 miles, they can't go a couple hundred miles, whatever, but they can go three or four miles. And that's enough to use those batteries and recycle them to use in forklifts, it turns out. Uh, and you can also take some of the, um, uh, the, the heavy metals out of those batteries and, use, and reuse them. The same thing with solar, the same thing with wind turbines. The, the fact is, though, uh, we need to find cleaner sources for this stuff. Uh, and we need to do that in part by investing in research and development uh, in this country so that we're moving ahead and we're not relying on other countries that don't have the environmental standards that we do for these products. Our guest is Bob Keith. He's the executive director of E2. His new book is called Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. Uh, one, one question or, that I'd like to, you to comment on, Bob, before we end the show in, a couple, in about three or four minutes is that uh, you know a lot of our listeners, a lot of people that are listening to this show live in the congressional district of the chair of the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, Kathy Castor. So uh, if a listener is a, a constituent of Representative Castor, does that uh, give that person a little bit extra leverage? And what would you recommend that they do if they, if they have the feeling, have the uh, incentive to contact Representative Castor about the climate, what, what are your suggestions? Well, look, Congresswoman Castor is a true leader on climate in Washington, D.C. and for the state of Florida. Uh, and Florida and the rest of us are lucky to have her on the job uh, because through the Select Committee on Climate Change, uh, they have been looking closely at this issue and coming up with recommendations uh, for uh, over a year now, I think. Uh, and absolutely, I know that her office would welcome hearing from constituents on this issue because it is an important issue. Uh, 
We also need to talk to your state, to your senators from the state of Florida, uh, who aren't necessarily on the same page. Uh, and we need to talk to people across, uh, the aisle, if you will, and, and throughout Congress and let them know that, uh, people want cleaner energy, that they want cleaner vehicles. Yes, because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's, it's a more economical thing to do. And we need to do it from a holistic perspective uh, that includes national security, that includes equity, that includes our environment and our economy. Yesterday, NBC News reported that the U.S. Capitol Police arrested six House staffers. So these are people who work for Congress members that because they were protesting inside the office of Senator Schumer, who's the Democratic leader in the Senate, they were demanding that the majority leader restart negotiations to pass climate legislation. And one staffer said, he, Schumer, Senator Schumer, has given up, but some of us are going to live through the climate crisis. Uh, any thoughts on, on those arrests yesterday? Well, it, it's just an, uh, another indication of the angst that this country is feeling because Congress uh, continues to kick the can down the road when it comes to serious and significant climate and clean energy legislation. You know, Leader Schumer has been a leader on this and continues to be a leader on this. Um, I don't know if those protesters were at the right office when they were doing that because there's a lot of folks in Congress that uh, are doing absolutely nothing on this. And if, if anything, they're going uh, the opposite direction and, and taking steps that keep us continually shackled to fossil fuels and missing the opportunities that we know come with clean energy. Well, I wanna thank you so much for coming on WMNS Tuesday Cafe, Bob. Oh, I wanna thank you for having me, Sean. It's always great to be here and I appreciate it. Bob Keith is executive director of E2, that's Environmental Entrepreneurs. It's a group of business owners, investors, and professionals who advance policies that are good for the environment and good for the economy. His new book is called Nomics: Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. If you missed the show, you can watch the interview again at WMNF.org. I'll have that posted later this afternoon. I want to thank Greg for engineering the show today and for his help while, while I was out. I want to thank John Dunn for being our phone producer. You've been listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe with Sean Canan. Next Tuesday, my guest will be St. Petersburg Mayor Ken Welch, I hope. And stay tuned next for Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. Their guest is Betty Jean Jeremy of the Clio Institute to talk about climate change. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Historic rainfall has swamped the St. Louis region. Some roads are impassable, and the St. Louis airport says flights are delayed because of severe flooding there. From St. Louis Public Radio, Sarah Fenton reports it is still